1: Welcome back to the Vacation Bible School podcast. We have reached a very exciting portion of the story. We're actually going to learn how to, you know, live our lives. We've just been kind of winging it through much of Genesis and, and parts of Exodus. But hey, it's actually time to get some instructions from the big guy. I am Jason Kirk. I am joined as always by Emily Kirk. How are you today?
0: Oh, good. How are you?
1: And, uh, fine. <laughs> and we are also joined by an assortment of associate pastors from our patreon as well as some other special guests how's how's everyone doing can we get a big uh a big amen from the whole congregation amen amen, amen. amen. <laughs> let's know alabama's the first on the board thank you Justin. <laughs> <laughs> so the story we're going to get to today is the ten commandments uh when we left our heroes We have encountered Mount Sinai, and we sort of broke up the stories and the laws a little bit, because in the Bible, they're very mixed together, and it'd be kind of impossible to just bounce between the two of them forever, so we're sort of splitting them up into their own contained episodes. We have just had the experience of the nation of Israelites have looked up and beheld this screaming, thundering volcano God, and oh, it's it's very terrifying. What happens in the middle of that is Moses goes up to meet God and finally receives the first of... 613 or more laws uh, in the course of the Torah. The, ten, <laughs> the first 10 are the very important ones. Um, this is very helpful to Moses because last we saw him in action, he was having to serve as the judge of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions, however you like, people. And he learned from his father-in-law he needs to delegate. Now he's going to learn from all of our father-in-law. <laughs>
0: The
1: <laughs> <just her> father, <laughs> the, the, Our law father.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, father
1: it. of the law. Right. It's time to get some rules. Um, so Moses is still serving as the go-between. Um, in Exodus 19, the Israelites all told Moses to tell God they agree to the basic terms of the deal. Keep his covenants, and he'll make them his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests. Now God is giving Moses the stuff you agree to on page 2 of the terms of service the initial commandments. Usually you just click through these things, but these are pretty substantial. You should probably read them carefully. So God issues these first 10 laws to Moses, but all the Israelites gathered around the foot of Sinai can hear. Remember, they can't touch it or they will explode or whatever. Um, If they don't, you have to murder them yourselves. This is a very family-friendly book um this becomes what we talked about in the last episode you know they're hearing the thundering voice of god and they're like no this is horrible please can moses do not just the talking but also the listening and then that becomes the system from there on out to this point god's rules had basically been don't try to steal his control over who lives and who dies that was kind of the law of genesis don't murder god's been hung up on human procreation for all of genesis and parts of exodus as well there's a lot of stuff about private parts um you know, also make sure you do the Passover stuff and Sabbath stuff and there have we'll we'll get yet another explanation for why Sabbath is a thing. But wait, there's another one on the way in Deuteronomy. Uh, and also don't make Nephilim, which I think that is the easiest law to keep. I think we're, good we're not on given that
0: one. many opportunities to create
1: <laughs> nephilim, so it's very difficult. Otherwise, back in Genesis, God was mostly fine with the Hebrews obeying local customs. Abraham negotiates with the Hittites, you know, sort of on their terms. Jacob negotiates with the Shechems. I don't know how you what you call the people, the Shechemites. Uh, Joseph becomes an Egyptian politician and functions as one. But now it's time for some custom rules for these people. We arrive at Exodus 20, one of the like, I don't know, three or so most famous passages in the Bible, maybe up there with Genesis 1 and like amalgamated Jesus stuff, I guess. First, the Psalms, so, so, the <laughs> Psalms in general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just All the, of it. the general pleasant coup of Psalms. Right. So two notes before we get going. One is there are at least eight different versions of the of the commandments and which sentence belongs in which. There, you know, there's a Jewish Talmud version, a Luther. Version, a Catholic version, some of the you know, and they're all basically the same. It's all the same stuff. It's all the same verses, but it's it's about where you draw the lines. The Jewish version makes God's intro, "I am the Lord your God." That is functionally the first commandment. Um, and some versions split the 10th commandment into two or three very, very similar things. It's all the same stuff. Um, we're going to use the Protestant order because house rules, but it's all the same stuff. We'll cover all the material either way. The other thing is we're going to do a little game since we got since we got a group tonight. As we go through each one, uh, we'll all take some sort of a vote on whether we agree to abide by this rule or not. This is what the Israelites had to do in real time. Um, we have the benefit of not staring into the, um, the, the lightning inferno, so we have that going for us. Oh, hi. Also, uh, one other thing I forgot to actually during this recording to note a couple people who are joining. We have Michael Elkon braves and birds on twitter who's joining us you'll hear him very soon talking about uh poseidon and we're also joined by our friend hassan masood you'll hear him around the 10 or 11 minute mark h-a-s-m-a-s on twitter this is our first time trying a live zoom call episode so things are a little bit i probably should have had people you know introduce themselves so we can sort of put names with voices but hey we'll clean that up for next time (laughs) hey let's get right to it let's get right to the first law
0: Okay, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me.
1: So right off the top, how does this sound? Is this a yes or a no?
0: Seems pretty easy for me, personally. It seems
1: kind of limiting. I like options. Yeah, yeah, okay. It is good to have options. (laughs) (laughs) Sticking
2: with a plague guy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Strong disagree. Okay, alright, so we got a good range of opinions here This is good
3: I personally agree, but my younger son At one point decided he wanted to worship Poseidon When we read Greek myths So he vetoes, so we have a divided house on that
1: I mean, you can make a strong case That Poseidon's watery elements Are, are very, very Genesis 1 god Very Red Sea god, right? So <laughs> may, maybe we can Sort of bridge across faiths With your, your Hellenic son
0: <laughs> I took three years of Latin, so I can respect that <laughs>
1: Poseidon's dope. It's fine. (laughs) So uh, in this first commandment, which we had a a range of reactions to, as I imagine the Israelites did. God, in this course of the story, in Genesis, he escaped Babylon's gods to Abraham. He conquered Egypt's gods. And now he's coming for Canaan's gods. There are other gods. It just straight up says there are other gods, but they're not this god. To oversimplify a little bit, we're still transitioning from, you know, vaguely henotheist Genesis, which, you know, it's worship of one God, we don't really worry about the others, to monolatrous early Israel, the specific worship of one God out of many, and we're still moving toward the, like, hard monotheism that we think of as biblical Abrahamic religion. This is set still right around 1300 B.C., uh, around this very general time zone, to heavily oversimplify, you know, archaeology suggests that Canaanites, proto-Israelites, somewhere between worshipping the Canaanite pantheon, worshipping the god of Genesis, who could be a version of Canaanite Odin mixed with Canaanite Thor. This is kind of a fun way to put it. Uh, if you buy the Levite theory that the Exodus isn't necessarily about all the Israelites, but more Moses' tribe of warrior priests then worship of YHWH Yahweh uh, is coming up from Egypt. Midian merging with the Canaanite All-Father, becoming the God we know God. That would sort of be a, a very very simple version of like the outside the story stance taken by a lot of uh, a lot of scholars. Within the story, it's all very straightforward, it's all the same god. When this was set, remember we're telling a bunch of former Egyptian polytheists, not by choice, uh that where they're going, they're not to worship Moloch or Asherah, but it's flexible beyond just literally other gods. Later, Jesus uses this verse to tell rich monotheists to stop worshiping money, a verse recently misunderstood by noted theologian Marco Rubio. Um <laughs> And Jesus expanded and, and he wasn't the first to expand it in that way, but his popularized usage of that verse led to thousands of youth pastors telling teens to stop worshiping video games. You know, you know, or, or, or did, did you ever have a, have a youth pastor do that? It says don't worship mammon. That means don't worship boyfriends and sports teams. And
0: well, yeah, general things. Sure.
1: And they always make it sound like impossibly like, like I know you, I know you're going to spend all Saturday rooting on your sports team to get a big touchdown.
0: That wasn't a big thing in the Midwest.
1: Okay. We
0: were near KU, so.
1: (laughs) So you're good on that one. So you can keep the Sabbath. But we
0: have the Chiefs, so.
1: Okay, but Sunday's a problem. I got it. (laughs) So in this story, is most likely written somewhere around 900, 700 BC, whatever, and you can find a million scholars who'll argue every month within that zone. The Israelite kingdom is constantly fending off rival polytheist nations. When the story is edited and finalized around 500, 400 BC, the Jews are leaving captivity in polytheist Babylon. All that time, their biggest unifier is having one specific God. So commandment number one is... In addition to being about God, it's to remember who you are your lineage, your history it's about keeping one story alive and three thousand years later it worked it was pretty amazing the the more we read the, the more the more astounded I am that it worked. That's awesome. <laughs> it took
0: a long time to get to that point. <laughs> here's, a,
1: here's a wrinkle, all right? A 2020-specific loophole. So uh, when this was set, atheism wasn't really a very familiar thing. Even, you know, when this was edited, it really wasn't a widespread thing in this part of the world. 2,500 3,000 years ago, God stories explain why the world exists. Being an atheist 3,000 years ago would be kind of like denying both all religion and all science at once. That means our atheist friends have a life hack here, a way to avoid breaking the first commandment you don't put any gods anywhere then you're not putting any gods above yahweh you're good right it's very simple how do we feel about all that
2: i did want to add coming from a uh, muslim background uh, raised muslim i'm basically now you know spiritual just all over the place but growing up essentially that first commandment for us was probably the most important commandment of them all that there is no god but god in fact when you actually um announce your commitment to Islam, or basically when you convert to Islam, you, you give what essentially is called bearing witness or the shahada. And literally the first part of that when you convert is that there is no God but God. So basically for us, that was every, if you have to like rank the commandments essentially, that, that's probably the most important one for us.
0: I would say that's probably true for Christianity.
1: I think the order is very important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, it does feel very intentional.
2: You can make an
4: argument that like the following commandments, breaking them, also breaks the first commandment.
3: Right.
1: You can. You find a lot of rabbinical interpretations that like really connect these things. You know, it's just millions and millions of arguments over 3,000 years that, you know, these things just interconnect in so many ways.
4: Yeah, I think along with that, if those of you who follow, you know, the Nicene Creed and starting with, I believe in one God, I feel like that's kind of an affirmation of the first commandment as well.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: I mean religions are all kind of competitive, so they have to, Start with that, or there's kind of everything's phase away, I guess.
1: So we look back at the Bible, right? And we see like this is the one that won. Like this won the region. It, it launched the world's two biggest religions. It defined monotheism for throughout history to this point, whether it was first or not. It was close to first. This story won. I mean, I think you made make the case that that like firm commitment right off the top to like the single rarest thing about the story played a big part because it's an easy story right it's an it's it's an it's an easy idea to sell um uh, let's let's go to let's go to commandment number two this one is sort of spins off the first one yeah
0: You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments.
1: So, first thing there, we talked a little bit with Dr. Friedman in the last episode. The idea that New Testament God is super, super nice guy God and quote unquote Old Testament God is big mean scary God. We noticed what happened there, right? If you're bad, it'll be bad for about three generations. If you're good, a thousand generations of what, what exactly does it say there?
0: steadfast love.
1: I think the consistent message of the Hebrew Bible is let, like, god wants to love us and he wants to do that much more than he wants to punish us and it says so right there like right at the beginning of of the second commandment so based on based on just what's in the bible how do we feel about that one i'm I mean, good I feel, with it
5: just feel, because i'm not artistic <laughs> I have a hard time making a making an idol
0: i feel like it would be hard to agree with the first one and go against this one so i'm just gonna <laughs> right. give it a thumbs up
1: <laughs>
3: did the israelites have household idols
1: it was, it was a thing in the region, for sure. They weren't really supposed to. There are stories later in the Bible of, like, there's some stuff that made the cut that I don't really know if it was supposed to. Um, there's a few laws that are actually just a few chapters after this about, you know, a household servant. If they, if they agree on a certain thing, they have to turn and face the gods in the house. And it's like this ceremony that, like, did y'all mean to put this in here? Because you just said, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't supposed to. And and it's, from what I've read archaeologically, they actually followed like the stuff that we read about. If you if you look up what is the you know the most ancient record of ancient Israel, it's like, well, there's these people who uh, they they didn't eat pigs because there's no pig bones, and and they didn't have. It is very difficult to find something that we can document and say this is an image of Yahweh slash El God. We can find gods throughout the region, but no one has, that I know of has said, this is a graven image of the God we know of. You, know, you might know him as Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever. So yeah, it, it was a thing that as far as we know, they, they, they stuck to. And it, it becomes a dispute you know, later in the Bible where there are various kings who, there's a, in first and second kings, the, the author is given kings a thumbs up, thumbs down. All the thumbs down kings are the ones who say, yeah, let's do idols. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a constant battle throughout the Bible. Any other uh, I- any other objections to following this commandment? <laughs> I feel like I can follow this one fine.
3: I was just kind of curious. I mean, uh, with right now, with uh, all of the illustrations of uh, Muhammad and all of that, it, was there a, a time that there was, you could not have an image of God in the monotheistic religions? And then uh, are, is that over with uh, Christianity? We're happy with slapping up uh, Jesus on any wall we want to, but... Uh, Islam still holds uh, firm to not putting the image out there, and that being an idol of sorts.
1: Yeah, I mean, in Christianity, anything goes. It's like you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't ever remember hearing that you couldn't. So, I mean, I think we all had that one very recognizable picture of Jesus, like profile view, kind of a sepia-toned.
1: The um, so one thing that people often bring up is like, well, what about Catholics? Because those folks like art, right? <laughs> um, It's, It's specifically about art that you are worshiping, you know, not necessarily art that you are appreciating or revering. And if you look at the language, it says, don't make images that represent things in the sky and on the ground, in the water. And you can, you know, we can all think of, all right, Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, right? Like you can connect those to like the basic building blocks of any pantheon so like that's what it's about is 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 you know don't represent these small pieces of god god is too big to be represented or contained in one idol one image one icon we you know god looks like whatever god wants to look like god god has represented himself herself themselves as a a man walking around the earth as a thundering volcano as i would say as a snake in, in early in genesis but not a popular interpretation as a, as a as a sea monster. God's a lot of stuff. And to try to reduce God to like a genie is that's that's not the idea.
3: Jason, I was going to say that I um I'm totally cool with commandment number two. And I had a lot of questions as to whether Catholics specifically or Christians generally had it in their Bibles when I spent a week in Italy. (laughs) <laughs> like you, you go into enough churches and you're like, holy cow, they seem to have a different interpretation than Jews do. And I was on that trip with another Jewish person, and we we're like, did they miss commandment two, um, or did they, did our did our rabbis tell us something about commandment two that's not really in there? <laughs> and then you find out that Muslims agree with us, and so now we get to gang up on the Christians. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's always these shifting allegiances as you go verse by verse. <laughs> it's uh
4: it's just funny the way the way the east versus the west at least when you look at the split in Christianity and how that contributes to uh quote-unquote worship versus venerating versus everything like that because uh, at least from my perspective uh and at least from like what I understand the traditions of Iconography stems back even to the early first century of Christianity in certain traditions. You would even hear that Christ basically painted the first icon by basically wiping his faith face, face with the cloth.
1: Yeah. The words that feel very similar to worship, but are not worship, right? Like that's a thing that requires a lot of like careful, precise thought, you know, a lot of thought has gone into parsing exactly what it means to revere and respect, but not worship, you know?
2: I'm o for two on these commandments because this—it's a novelty Jimmy Carter mug that I found downstairs.
1: Uh, it is my god now, so I'm o for two on the commandments. So. Okay. okay, that's fine though. That's fine.
3: And and that mug is not going to do well when we get to the commandment on "I shall not covet."
1: <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all. Breaking I know. Down I'm right now. I'm staring down the barrel at that one. <laughs> but, Drew, I think you're going to rally in the later commandments. We we got a comeback coming. <laughs> Yeah, this is one that really gets connected to the other ones. Like in the the Talmud, ancient rabbis tie idolatry and the whole law together, sort of, from the idea of like, how can you follow the law if you follow an object that it—that's not the thing that gave you the law. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish elder court around the time of the Roman Empire, they believed idolatry to be roughly as bad as murder. Like it was like you know everyone agrees murder is usually going to be the worst thing to break, but they had idolatry like right up there. And it's it's fascinating to think about like how radical this anti-idolatry idea was like that was just universal you know every culture on earth represented gods you know in art physically in some way i shouldn't say every but and and we have the priests of this one specific nation want their nation to commit so hard to uh something contrary and uh again it worked the funny part about this, after the commandments, so Exodus twenty, most of it is the commandments. There's this little, this little part trailing off at the end where God says, "All right," you're talking to Moses. After the Israelites say, "Please stop screaming at us," God says, "Moses, come here. Well, let's, let's talk about a couple of things. One of them is, all right." When you go out to set up altars to worship, I want you to do it like my guy Abraham did it back in Genesis, which was setting up some rocks, making a very simple little altar. Don't cut the rocks. Don't mold things. Take the rocks as you find them. It's a very naturalist idea of building a space of worship. And then the story of the golden calf happens, which we'll get to hopefully in our next episode. And God changes his mind and says, fine, we are going all in on ornate, elaborate gold. You can represent, I want, we, we joked in our first episode about the cherubim, as you know, our idea of like the fat angel babies. Those are actually like sphinxes. Those are like winged, lion-headed, people-faced horses. Like, sure, yeah, you, you want golden, golden cherubim, fine. And God sort of just flattens them with like, 15 straight chapters of how to do very, very religious stuff. You, you didn't want simple rock sculptures? Fine. <laughs> I yeah. think
0: just technology vastly improved in the time that he made the okay, commandment yeah. versus...
1: <laughs> um, so. So Two commandments in. There is a break right here. Per tradition and extremely close reading, these two commandments were the only two literally directly from God's mouth, however God talks. Um, In the first, God said, I am the Lord. In the second, God said, I am a jealous God. There are no more eyes in the rest of the commandments. God speaks in the third person in, in one or two of them. It's almost like God is passing the mic to Moses. And some Bibles don't even use quote marks for the Ten Commandments because if you get really, really granular in it it's it's hard to say exactly when god stops talking there's story there that's right behind the text just because of like the pronoun goes away and gets replaced with the second person and it could just be like god suddenly starts talking like the rock and that's fine but for a long time a lot of rabbis have taught that the first two commandments are set apart from the following 611 or however many so yeah hey let's go to number three
0: okay okay You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name.
1: How are you feeling about this one? I'm feeling bad myself.
0: I feel great about this one. I have the cleanest mouth of anyone I know.
2: I'm pretty awful about that one, I have to admit. Uh, Every Saturday at Georgia plays, I'm out.
0: <laughs> I think I know like 10 people that can say that they abide by this one.
1: Abide by the usual interpretation.
0: Yeah, and song. most of them are in my family. So okay, basically anyone outside of my family, no.
1: <laughs> so this is a fun one because we take it to mean... Don't say God damn it, basically. But it can mean a lot of things, and we don't really know exactly what all it means. Um, it could be about oaths, I swear to God. It could be against trying to use the name of God in magic. Like, the Bible essentially teaches that a technology that is magic is real, and you should avoid it. It happened in Egypt, it'll happen, you know, for, for the next few hundred years of the story. Magic is real, avoid it. Don't play with Dungeons and Dragons and do yoga. We, in the In the 90s, we learned that yoga is satanic. So. <laughs> I didn't learn that. One. <laughs> Shout out to Frank Peretti. And then you know, don't don't overuse it casually and trivialize it, and definitely don't use it in curses. Which, okay, if you say "God damn it," all right, that's a curse.
0: Who coins for the swear jar? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Since we don't know exactly what the author had in mind, many Jews avoid you know spelling or saying or attempting to pronounce names of God just to be on the safe side. So if you see you know G slash D written out, that's what's happening there. Um, the most common idea is don't swear to God as. And don't promise and then fail to follow through jesus extends this to don't swear by anything live in such a way that when you say yes people know that it means yes period you can also extend this to don't claim to follow god don't bear the name of god if you're not going to try all that hard to live up to it republican party um and there's an argument that doesn't refer to cussing at all because like lots of biblical prayers and psalms and the prophets are violent angry curses right saying comes the third one god damn it is a prayer if you think about it right we're saying, God, please bring down punishment on this specific thing. He would probably say no, but not all prayers get answered. All right, you need the right punctuation for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to be careful. You have to be sure. You have to be sure the comment's in there.
0: So this this is like r- literally something that I have never in my life said, and I don't think I ever could. And probably that has a lot to do with my upbringing. But I don't say any curse words. I tried it for like a week. It just didn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, For me, this has always been something that it was just you don't say God's name with emptiness behind it. And so for me, that just means anything that's not about him or relating to him in the way that like the Bible would say. Yeah,
1: I think don't say it in an empty way. I think that is that definitely has something to do with what the uh, original author meant. Yeah. Any more thoughts on this one? Over three. (laughs) (laughs) drew the comeback is still on its way here we go (laughs) so from this one onward most of the rest of the laws can apply to anybody. Atheists, whatever. Um, even if you don't convert to Judaism, you can still be a righteous Gentile like Noah was. And, according to the rabbis, you can still have a place in God's eventual new kingdom. There, There is an entirely different list of commandments called the Noahide laws, written down by rabbis hundreds of years later and based on stories from Genesis rather than laws of Exodus. They're basically the Ten Commandments, very pretty close to it with a few changes. It's Noah was not Jewish, but Noah was called righteous before there was a law. There's even a religious Religion called Noahidism for people who specifically want to be righteous Gentiles. They don't want to be Christians. They want to be righteous Gentiles. It's like it's almost like Old Testament Christianity. It's pretty fascinating, pretty interesting. Next one, number four. This 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 is a fun one. This is this you do the three hard things and then you get your reward.
0: Okay, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it.
1: A day off? How's that sound, y'all?
0: Sounds great. <laughs> but I haven't done that in a long time.
1: I've never heard of it. Yeah, no, I'm in. Mike, how are we feeling about the Sabbath these days?
0: Judaism has this strange
3: ability to make things that should be fun into unfun, and one of them is that the Jewish interpretation of not working has extended to not using a car or not using electricity, because lighting a fire or utilizing fire was considered to be work. So if I were an Orthodox Jew, I would not be able to watch college football on Saturdays, which. Honestly, I'm considering Orthodox Judaism at this point for that reason. Thank you, Jim Harbaugh. Um, <laughs> and I, I've had this whole debate with my father, who's an Orthodox Jew, that while fire may have been interpreted as work 3,000 years ago, it is not it, turning on a TV is not work in any sense now. But Orthodox Jews view that very differently. The, the conclusion is Judaism has turned what should have been an easy commandment and a fun commandment into something that can be a challenge. <laughs>
1: We've had a lot of time to argue about it, right? So, like, things get complicated over time. (laughs) Yeah, and we're good at that. I was reading one old argument that was basically like, well, if you live so far away from synagogue that you need a car to get there, you should simply move closer. (laughs) (laughs) What a simple (laughs) fact that is. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, taking off work every seventh day, this is already kind of a thing in parts of Mesopotamia. Um, it often gets described as more out of, like, superstition or customer just, like, literally, hey, people need days off. As always, when the Bible shows its older Middle Eastern influences, the differences are what matter most. In the Bible, it's a complete break from all other, other days, not just a holiday. And it's about a positive memory, God resting to admire the planet he gave to people. Later on, it also it also acquires a memory of the liberation from Egypt. Let's note, again, like we talked about last episode, the Sabbath extends to immigrants and servants and animals. One of several verses in the law that advocate for treating animals like you'd treat people. Even the bloody, disgusting sacrifices laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which we'll get to, convey some dignity in animal life. As we see in Leviticus... This is kind of where it gets fun. There's a very anti-capitalist route here to the the idea of the Sabbath. Don't maximize profits. Don't squeeze everything you can out of people or out of the environment. We see in Leviticus, Leviticus goes hard on give the land a break. You cannot frack in Leviticus. Slow down, stop, breathe, quit your side hustle. You're never going to get ahead anyway. Later in the Bible, this applies to all commerce, not just labor. Just unplug from a buying and selling society, which... Like, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible where, like, oh, oh how how old-fashioned. And then every now and then you come across something, even in the bloody nasty book of Leviticus, that you're like, okay, this is progressive ideas even here, you know, by today's standards. A community of people keeping the Sabbath in a way that God instructs, that means a whole company of people who have to rely on each other, you know, telling people they have to take days off. That feels, like, privileged, right? Like, Because, like, poor people need to work. But... The rest of the law that we'll get to show rich people must take care of poor people. So for those two things to work together, the Torah is one big social safety net. And it's not optional charity, and it's not philanthropy that you get praised for. It is the law to take care of poor people. They get to take a day off just like a rich person does. Any other thoughts on the Sabbath? Is a live sacrifice
4: considered work?
1: <laughs> live sacrifice?
4: <laughs> I feel like we'll cover that soon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we got we got about ten chapters on that to come pretty soon. <laughs> so a, a live sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you, you have to uh, you have to get rid of all the blood. One of the very first laws in Genesis is don't eat anything that's still living. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sabbath's better. when you live in a state without blue laws?
1: <laughs> Let's. Go. So those were the four very very spiritual laws. We will now turn to to the earthly realm. Number five.
0: Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you.
1: More agreeable already, right? We can all do this. Yeah, even Drew's on board. We love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> the comeback starts here. <laughs> here we for, for some of us, the last couple
4: weeks. The last couple weeks have been tough for some of us to, uh, to keep that up. Amen, brother.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Political uh, elections tend to uh, test the fifth commandment, I think. So this commandment, it's a sign of a culture that likes old people, unlike ours. Like, again, hey, like, we think we're so advanced and we're so modern. Well, you know, we're a society that just discards old people once they are no longer of economic use, right? And here is a commandment, the first interpersonal commandment, straight from God, that's saying, no, actually, old people are still good, whether you can squeeze money out of them or not. Also note, it does not just say, Father, not only... Does saying father and mother convey equality right up front in literally the first commandment about people? I think we could also use this if we're trying to lawyer our way out of some of the trickier later laws. We can say, wait a minute, the fifth commandment said father and mother, right? The fifth commandment implies men and women are equal. So if you come across a really sexist you know verse in, in Exodus or Leviticus, what's, sorry, you're trumped by the, uh, by the fifth commandment. Any of our lawyers agree that might be at least something to throw out, <laughs> something to attempt in court?
3: as a counterpoint to your point that we uh, don't like old people in this country we just elected a 78 year old to the highest office in the land so you
1: know we, we only like them as politicians that's it that's the only job you can do that
2: old man's gonna work so i
1: don't know <laughs> Also about the, so like Dr. Friedman mentioned last episode, like every kid who who reads the 10 commandments, their first question is like, so what if my parents tell me to steal, right? Because then I'm caught between two different commandments. So there's like a chain of command thing. If your parents tell you to steal, then they are not in turn honoring their parents, their parents, their parents, their parents, all the way back to God, right? It's it's betraying the entire line of succession. So at least that is what I've seen as the most common interpretation is like, if anyone, including your parents, tells you to break a commandment, well, that sort of breaks that whole chain.
5: The the one thing that I wanted to add here, uh, this is the first commandment. At least my dad, whenever he would preach the, the Ten Commandments, he would always point out that, hey, this is the first commandment that has a good promise attached to it if you if you actually do it. Like the first first few are like, hey, just do the, these things. But uh, also, I think that was kind of some reverse psychology also because he was a parent. He had
1: to. <laughs> he's yeah, like, hey, <laughs> hey, God's gonna love you if you do this. So uh, come on. <laughs> also, let's remember our author here. According to tradition, these are being written down by Moses. Who is not only a dad, but also a dad whose wife has just left him, right? So,
4: (laughs) divorce dad energy.
1: (laughs) So, fathers rights go through the mammoth. Wife guy Moses. Here's the thing: you know, we talk about biblical marriage, right? Find a law about biblical marriage. Good luck. There's laws about divorce. Why? Because they're written by wife guy Moses, whose wife just left him. That's why there's divorce laws, not marriage laws. We, you know, it actually probably wasn't written by Moses, but the storyline's more fun that way. She, she literally left two chapters ago. <laughs> so you're saying that this the translation should be here, <coughs> honor your father and uh, mother. My wife left me. <laughs> <laughs> honor your father and, and your mother, despite the fact. Actually, she took the kids, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so there you go. Honor your dad who's up here on a mountain. Talking oh, that's clouds. why he put
5: father first.
2: So yeah. It wasn't a sexist thing. It was. It was like, hey, remember me? I do have a fun little story, kind of related to that. Like when I was growing up, the common saying from my parents, whenever they tried to like get us to do something for them, like whether that's getting like a cup of water or something, they'd say like, oh, you know, if you do something for your parents, God will build you a house in heaven. And then thinking back, I'm like, wow, I've got a subdivision at this <laughs> point <laughs> <laughs> waiting for me.
1: You're playing Sim City over there.
0: I'm. I might have been the only kid in my in my church or in the group of kids around me that were like Christian kids that their parent never threw this at them as a way to get something out of them. I don't remember if my mom or dad. Well, my dad wasn't really around, but I don't remember my mom ever saying this Has your me. dad
1: ever heard of this verse?
0: I'm sure he has. Okay.
1: <laughs> has your dad read this? <laughs> I, that I don't know. Okay. I can't guarantee that um let's see we are on to commandment we're on six i got a good feeling about this one too i think. I we're sure all gonna,
0: hope we're all on the same page if here we,
1: if you disagree to this one i think we have to report it you
0: shall not murder
1: <laughs> huh pretty good one right pretty good <laughs> one.
4: hey even drew's on board we're good
1: <laughs> um, so
4: my question here is what about among us
1: Hmm. So I haven't actually played that game, but you tell me if it fits within the, the commonly accepted stipulations. All right. The, the, f- the first one, people usually agree that justifiable war is acceptable. And the word justifiable is doing massively heavy lifting there. If you're being robbed at night. Then it's okay to go ahead and off them, but if it's during the daylight, you have to try to escape from the situation peacefully. Capital punishment, because like, hey, Leviticus is constantly telling you to stone people to death. So those are those are usually the three big stipulations that are accepted. Would Among Us fit into any of those at all? So
5: does does it really mean Israelites don't uh, murder Israelites?
1: So yeah, according to uh, according to the text, don't murder. Just don't murder anyone. Obviously. Within the story of the Exodus, and then good grief, the book right after the Exodus, there's lots of murder, (laughs) Uh, you know, and it (laughs) appears to be sanctioned by God. This is where the idea of justifiable war comes in. So that's a difficult thing. Did God tell people to break this commandment or was the ultimate plan fulfilling the promise? Did that simply, you know, supersede everything?
3: Did I hear correctly that nighttime
1: knife crime is sanctioned by the Bible? If they break into your house... (laughs) <laughs> so so castle, to doctrine the original castle doctrine castle do- yes. with, a blade, with I was, a blade, okay. All right, cool, 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 yeah, cool, cool. cool, I cool. Would, stand your ground. I'm just either. making notes. But yeah. I was worried
4: you were, that was biblical stand your ground. So now yeah. more castle.
1: Yeah. You could possibly hack this in a way, like trap an enemy in your house at night and say, oh, 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 he's robbing me. Right? Like you could probably find a hack there. Mm. But hack we will Jason, find, really? Hack?
0: A good person would not find it. Heck, heck, heck,
1: yeah. But the 10th commandment, no, 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 we'll get to that one. The, The 10th commandment sees what you're plotting all along. Can I
2: also ask for an interpretation on our thoughts on the holy hand grenade of Antioch? As well,
1: <laughs> that yeah. one has all of its own rules. This is from Monty Python. It's, okay, yeah, you're you're not a big enough. Big I've enough watched nerd. Monty Python, but I have not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that one has enough rules attached to it that, like, I think even Moses is like, "Oh my, you, you figure it out from here, right?" <laughs> There's also um in the, I'm trying to think exactly what it is in the Quran. People are debating like, is it okay if someone attacks you at church to defend yourself? You know, if someone tries to murder you at church, d- would it defile? The church to murder them, and the answer is, yeah, they're trying to murder you. Murder them first, right? Like, so there's this idea that if someone is trying to hurt you and you have to defend your own life, then that's their fault, and you know that feels consistent in in both books.
5: I don't want to make this political, but that literally that situation right there was just on the ballot in uh, in Alabama for a state state amendment. Uh, like they were they had to like sort that out for like stand your ground laws in churches and
4: stuff like that. So. Hmm. Um, I feel like though like going along with that look, if somebody's trying to murder you at any point in time and whether they're in church at night or whatnot, would that not then that totally falls under the justifiable
1: and it could just be a one-on one war. Right. Yeah. That would be yeah, yeah that would be <laughs> yeah. a pretty popular interpretation, you know. And then there's like all sorts of court proceedings like rabbinical law all the way through is like very very human life is is deeply precious. The idea is God made one person as a way to say, you know, every person is as valuable as Adam. It's like every person is as valuable as the first person. So taking any life is something to be extremely hesitant about. If it comes down to it and it's you or an attacker, well, they made their choice. The bad thing happens to them. But there's the, the Sanhedrin again. The, there's a story about, you know, one rabbi says the, the ideal would be that no no capital punishment. on You know, one person in seven years, that's probably too much capital punishment. And the reply is... How about one every 70, right? So, like, even capital punishment within the community that inherited the book that has all these punishments that say they should be punished by death, even that community says, the, the, the book says death penalty, but we're, we're still not into death penalty. So Take it easy. Yeah, easy on the death penalty. God.
3: Jason, there's also an element here that while the, the Jews were not fans of murder in any form, the Greeks and the Romans were quite okay with uh, killing children under various circumstances. And so thou shalt my murder may seem uncontroversial to us. It was a big deal back then because, for example, in, in, my, uh, in, my, in my book here, it, it refers to the uh, Roman historian Tacitus uh, sneering. It says, it is a crime among the Jews to kill any child, as if to the Romans, that was some sort of radical and ridiculous notion. So, hu- hu- hooray for our uh, monotheistic religions and not killing children.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's there's really a lot of stuff in here that we look back at and we were like, oh, 3,000 years, how antiquated, but like... There, there is there really is a lot of stuff within the Torah law that's uh, no. This, this, this was a step forward. Even some of the stuff that sound like some of the later stuff that sounds gross to us today is is still at the time a step forward. Oh, also uh, later verses like in Leviticus it says a few different ways. Negligence is as bad as murder, right? Like if you can save someone and you don't, then that's that's as bad as if you you know actively did it yourself. And you can take any law to any extreme for any reason. You could use this commandment. It's, you know, to be an extreme pacifist who literally would not hurt a fly, right? Or... You could use this commandment to argue that you should be a vigilante who assassinates murderers, right? You could you could just, you could say, I'm the punisher. I don't know if he was Jewish. As always, Jesus finds an extreme by counting anger as literally as bad as murder. And Jesus says, if someone hits you, give them another shot, right? Uh, and I don't think he does this to condemn and shame, but, you know, to as eliminate eliminate as many moral gray areas as possible and to show all actions begin as thoughts, which, again, that springs not from some idea that Jesus was the first person to have, But uh, I think from the 10th commandment and, you know, the later prophets and rabbis, all of Jesus's stuff, it's all very good and beautiful, but he wasn't the first person to say most of it. Um, Number seven.
0: Number seven. You shall not commit adultery.
1: I'll I'll go ahead and agree to that one. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this, I mean, this feels like a pretty. pretty easy. Second
2: wife guy commandment. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, I think we're beginning to see what went wrong for...
5: <laughs> it, it's better when you realize the Ten Commandments was Moses tweeting through
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I only have one note on this one. It's like not explained or defined or anything. It just says adultery. And like later laws and traditions make clear it's about a marriage going wrong. But youth pastors will forever insist it's about premarital makeouts and like... yeah premarital this and the, but the Bible doesn't say a lot about premarital anything no like,
0: but even as someone who was a pretty strict Christian kid and that was and I inflicted that upon myself because my parents didn't care adultery never meant any of that I
3: will stick up to the Jews here and while we can make Saturdays unfun as a former Jewish summer camp counselor we have no problems with uh, adultery and I'm using air quotes here when it's uh Two unmarried people exploring the wonders of adolescence together.
1: <laughs> it's literally the first story in the Bible is two unmarried people <laughs> exploring adolescence together. <laughs> it's true. Um, Commandment eight.
0: Commandment eight. Oh, wow. Well, we're already on another one. We're almost done. You shall not steal.
1: This seems pretty easy too, right? We've got another one in the books. Yeah. Yes. So it says steal. And that's it. But as you go through the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and these other laws build on and expand on the basic 10, we start to see that it doesn't just mean the physical theft of physical objects. Here's some more socialist talk. Leviticus says, to buy a poor person's land and give them no path back to home ownership is wrong. Leviticus says, some of your profits belong to poor people. Leviticus says, wage theft is theft and nobody actually owns anything because it's all rented from God. So, like, there's this idea that's very popular to say on the internet that, like, oh, Jesus, I think he was a socialist. Well, yeah, have you met his dad? (laughs) The, the, The Deuteronomy also makes clear failing to return a lost object could be considered stealing. Again, just like negligence with murder, the commandments aren't just don'ts. They're stuff you have to do. And speaking of the bad laws, I've read multiple Hebrew professors who have said that the verb choice, steal, indicates this could forbid selling someone into slavery, as in stealing their liberty, as in the troubling laws about how you should treat your slaves... I mean, those might be moot because it says right here, don't steal. So, yeah, I mean, I think this don't steal, we agree with that on the face of it. But once you really look at the rest of the laws, it's it's even better.
0: It's interesting when you think about that one in terms of slaves, though, because the previous commandment literally talks about slaves.
1: Yeah, the idea of slaves in the Bible, like, yeah, that sucks. It sucks that it's in there and it's been used to to justify bad things. If we look back at the history, then there are parts that we can identify as being more about six-year terms of indentured servitude to pay off a debt that a person had no other way to pay off. This is different from the lifetime chattel bondage that existed in Egypt and in our supposedly civilized country within the memory of what our great-great-grandparents in the Bible, when it refers to slaves, it's often, not always, often referring to a system of servitude that has an end and that is regulated, you know, in, in later in Exodus, it actually, I think the next chapter, it's, you can't kill your slaves. You can't, if you beat your slaves too badly, they go free. Like, it's, it's not, it's not the most enlightened thing in the world, but literally compared to the last 200 years ago in this country, it's a step forward. And gosh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> Any other thoughts on number eight? All right.
0: You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor.
1: So the rabbis they talk about this when they take it to mean everything from like literally factual gossip You know, just spreading news that is true. Everything from that to perjury in a death penalty case could fall under the ninth commandment. Deuteronomy adds to this requiring multiple witnesses in court for a conviction. Jewish tradition, you know, goes heavy on warning witnesses not to perjure themselves. Multiple rabbis over the years have said gossip is basically murder. Um, I mean, honestly, you can you can find anybody from the last 3000 years arguing this or that commandment is as bad as murder.
0: I mean, it still is you're you're not in, in as many circles as I am probably that have so much gossip, but it can literally ruin people. And especially because our daughter is a gymnast, so I'm involved in a lot of these gymnastics groups and things. And people are horrible. <laughs> that's all I've learned. <laughs> They're awful.
1: There was um, a tweet I meant to show you about like what it's like sharing gossip with a straight man. <laughs> and the meme is just like blank face. That's like, <laughs> like, there's no actual curiosity or anything. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's like me telling him anything.
5: I think you only hit on a big thing, which is that gossip can pollute a family for generations. Whereas, you know, all the other things that you're talking about, I mean, aside from obviously stopping somebody from having a family or ending their lives, gossip can really, it's something that someone, especially in a small community, can always call back to and say, well, you're, you're the son of this guy who did this other thing. And, and that's... That's the kind of thing that can really make you a lesser member of a community.
0: It's toxic it really is there's just even little things that you don't think have any bearing it just plays such a big role in how if you're speaking to someone new in this environment or whatever and and you're telling them something about someone else their thoughts immediately are poisoned over that person whether it's true or not and whether that person initially believes it or not they've still heard it that's their first impression so it yeah i hate it it's awful
1: i think this was one that really really lodged in my brain as a kid because like this is one where the new testament adds on it as well and like sort of lays out what slander means and like i remember my my dirtbag scumbag youth group friends this was a thing that we took seriously we had a this worked out technical code of what was slander or what wasn't and like <laughs> we would all do this thing we're like hey man we were all joking about you the other night but like that's that's good you know that's that's better than like yeah people i don't
0: i it's weird because growing up i was i was not a popular kid and i wasn't an outcast i was just me i was kind of free-spirited but that was how my family lived and so i don't remember ever feeling like gossip was a big part of my day-to-day but now as a mom it's turned <laughs> it's so much harder <laughs> yeah and sometimes it's, I mean, it can be fun, don't get me wrong, but it's also toxic.
1: That's why you need a rule against it, because it's fun. <laughs> yeah,
0: probably so. If, if it was
1: boring, you wouldn't need a rule. <laughs>
0: well, like, you, everybody wants to hear the drama, but it's just, it, it's perpetuating that drama that can be really harmful.
4: Yeah, to kind of go along what was said earlier, I, as a teacher, I've had to, you know, do the restorative justice circles and bring people in just for either a rumor that went around that was just damaging to the entire class or to an entire like small community of 150 students like it it can very easily see how this commandment was higher on the list of the 10 as opposed to like you know the the 613 plus
1: yeah and there are there are the 6 the 613 do build on this one as well but yeah this is definitely a um so like yeah any of the 10 that you see you can you can basically argue that there's 10 to 100 more that spring off of it, which further emphasize how important this one is. Um, Number 10, a very important one.
0: You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor.
1: So this one, why I think this one is so important is it's not about actions. It's not about physical actions. It's about thoughts, what's in your mind. It's about what's inspiring you to do specific things. Um, First of all, remember neighbor means everybody, so there is no loophole there. This one does, again, to go back to Jesus, just because it's familiar to a lot of people, this does what a lot of what Jesus does with the individual commandments. He shows it's not about just actions, but about your motives. It's about what's in your heart. And I've seen Deuteronomy 26, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel 36 mentioned as Hebrew Bible portions that also show how it's, it's about your heart. The coveting commandment calls out people who will try to BS their way, you know, someone who would say, there's a years-long scheme. I was able to take my neighbor's house, a real estate scam. It wasn't technically stealing. It was all legal. But this or the, the,
0: paying seven hundred and fifty dollars a year in taxes.
1: <laughs> the tenth commandment is it's about did you follow the letter of the law or the spirit of the law, right? And, and, I, and I never thought about the tenth commandment that way, but I I, I really like it because it covers a lot of bases, you know.
0: I think this is probably the uh, the hardest one for most people to follow, but it's it almost feels like more of something that you should be striving toward because I think it's impossible to not have a thought of jealousy or
2: it's especially interesting growing up catholic because what most interpretations are of the second commandment the catholics throw into the first and they really hammer you with the catholic guilt here oh, yeah. they split the 10th commandment specific coveting of that neighbor's wife off into its own ninth commandment so you have two commandments focused specifically on on thou shalt not covet and a second one you're doubling down on the wife guy stuff saying <laughs> thou shalt not commit adultery and then i shall not covet thy neighbor's li- wife so for catholics in particular too this is definitely like you feel that impact even just that much more about hey don't do this right. that way
1: yeah there's i forget exactly which version there are three covet verses yeah
2: yeah, this is the Catholic backdoor in purity culture, too, growing up. Like, by separating that one out into its own commandment, the whole, like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife or anyone's wife or wives or women in
1: general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really keeps it going, yeah. Yeah, as a kid, this one was like, I mean, this seems easy. I don't covet my neighbor's donkey. Done, right? But it's not about that's, that. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> I could follow this one up until that. <laughs> We're out on that one. Yeah, so that's it. That's Ten Commandments. They end up inscribed on two stone tablets. these get broken, we'll discuss. <laughs> two more stone tablets. Uh, they get sealed inside the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, the thing from Indiana Jones. Uh, the typical idea is there are five commandments on each. This is the, the the usual standard interpretation. Something roughly like the God rules and the people rules. But one cool theory that I found is that if this is all modeled after a Hittite-style treaty, uh, where the powerful party and the less powerful party, they used to get a copy of the entire contract. That would mean if this worked in that fashion, God would take a copy and Moses would take a copy. But what happens in the story is the Israelites keep both copies sealed in the Ark of the Covenant, which means God is saying, I'm I'm here with you the entire time. Like, the Ark of the Covenant then is, you know, it's it's a symbol, it's the seed of God's power, but it's also literally saying, like, my part of the deal is right there with your part of the deal. And we don't know if that's what it is, because it doesn't really say, but it's a cool idea. The other interesting thing that I've seen the Hittites reference most frequently, so the law as a whole the 613 or whatever commandments in the torah clearly influenced by really ancient mesopotamian law codes everyone knows the code of hammurabi has influences and yeah but there's even older stuff as well um and we'll get to that but the ten commandments themselves I've seen a lot of exodus scholars seem to view them as most specifically inspired by the way hittite treaties are structured and and i've seen it the 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 lexum bible dictionary broke it down you know you have a preamble i am the lord your god a historical prologue telling you how we came to this point brought you out of egypt stipulations the commandments depositions they're written down and stored michael we're really speaking your language now right and you have (laughs) witnesses and this is so as always when the bible uses a story from elsewhere in the middle east the big key is not the similarities. Like, it's easy to say, oh, Noah's like Gilgamesh. It's the differences. In the creation story, the big difference from the older Mesopotamian stories was that God created the world not with violence, but with words. And he created the world not to enslave people, but to give it to people. In the flood story, the difference is that God is doing it to purge evil, not because he wants peace and quiet, which is how it worked, <laughs> how it worked in Gilgamesh. In the Ten Commandments... One huge difference between the Bible and other God-treaty stories is that the witnesses in the Bible's treaty are not other gods, but other people. God is here among us, playing on our terms, giving us both copies of the contract, and everyone who is witnessing it is us. God doesn't really need backup. He's God. He's God. Uh, The Ten Commandments get mentioned and referenced several other times in the Bible, rarely verbatim. That means, (laughs) including by Moses himself, that means people were discussing and interpreting these things right away and for centuries. When Jesus summarizes his view of the commandments, he's the latest in a long line of rabbis to do so. The prophets within the Bible did this. Deuteronomy repeats the Ten Commandments, but with different wording, um, changing the explanation for the Sabbath from remembering the seventh day of creation to remembering the Exodus. The fun story here that you can read in if you like is if... Moses wrote this, then he's writing down the commandments a second time in Deuteronomy. He can't go crack open the Ark of the Covenant to check. He's doing it from memory. So what's fresh in his mind? The Exodus. We've been doing this whole time. So like, yeah, sure. We we have a good idea that different authors wrote this, you know, hundreds of miles, possibly hundreds of years, possibly apart. But if you follow the storyline, Moses just forgot what the original thing was and he can't look it up to check because it's sealed in the Ark. Um, last thing here. The Ten Commandments are special for a few reasons. They're blunt. They're simple compared to the nitty-gritty stuff in the rest of the law, which sort of spring out from these main ten things. Even if you can't learn and remember all 613, you can remember most of the ten, or you can remember the seven Noahide laws, or you can just elect to try and keep like three of them, and okay, that's a good start. They're about interpersonal ethics, not just religious ritual or devotion. So many ancient gods only care about being elevated and served. In Moses' words, this god cares about people Being good to each other. There have since been a million ideas on all of this. One Catholic idea is that when Jesus fulfills the law, he replaces almost all of them except the ten. And then that's it. The ten, no matter what spring from them, will always be with us. So that's the deal. Do do we uh, click to the next page of the terms and conditions? (laughs) Sure, just keep clicking.
3: (laughs) I thought it was interesting that the ten commandments are 120 words which is a a remarkably short amount for something so significant and i compared that to i looked up the gettysburg address which is noted for its remarkable brevity and that was 272 words so kudos to god for doing in less than half of what less than half the words that it took abe lincoln to uh do the most famous speech in american history kudos for brevity (laughs) (laughs)
1: definitely one thing the bible is known for
3: yeah yeah just wait for leviticus
1: hey thank you to everybody who joined us for this this was very fun we will try to do stuff like this again in the future special thanks to michael and hassan for contributing to our Interfaith Council and to all of our Patreon Early Service and Associate Pastor folks and our love offering folks as well. Even a dollar is a love offering, of course. Uh, Everybody on here had fun stuff to say. We have many other people who we would like to get on here in in the future. Maybe you'll hear some lady voices at some point. We also followed this episode with almost an hour of like fellowship Q&A type stuff that we will set aside as an episode for Patreon Early Service exclusive on this main feed next time, we will either have the golden calf and finally finishing Exodus, or maybe it's time for a Christmas episode. We'll see which happens first. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you'd like to support, we're on Twitter, Instagram, VBS Podcast on both, jasonkirk.substack.com for the newsletter, patreon.com slash VBS Podcast, of course. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you for listening.